Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody is your much-needed wake-up call in a weary world. Let Danielle's fiery passion for creating a better world kickstart your day and get woke with her bevy of special guests from the world of news and politics, art, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and in on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world filtered through the powerful voice of a Black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody. Hey, Brown Girls, it's Ashanti, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Welcome to season nine. This season is all about the midterm elections and the issues at the center of key races. Today, we're focusing on climate change. I'm so excited to introduce you to Nayeli Kobo, a young climate activist. She is the co-founder of People Not Pozos and the South Los Angeles Youth Leadership Coalition. I wanted to talk to Nayeli because she has been making waves in climate change since she was nine years old. She grew up in University Park, a neighborhood in LA largely impacted by toxic drilling. Nayeli and many people in her community developed health issues linked to extractive industries. Nayeli's story is not uncommon. Many communities in the U.S. are directly affected by climate change. Before we hear Nayeli's story, one of my BGG producers, Brittany Martinez, is here to chat about another climate issue affecting folks in the U.S. right now. Hi, Ashanti. Right now, a story that has got a lot of people's attention is the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. The city of Jackson continues to have issues with contamination and access to running water. But this isn't an isolated incident. We are taxpaying citizens, so we shouldn't have to live like this. This is, like I say, this has been going on for years and years. For several months, Jackson has been under a boil water advisory meaning that citizens had to boil water before consumption. That means tap water alone wasn't safe to drink, to bathe, or even brush their teeth with. Recently, the advisory was lifted, but access to clean water continues to be a problem. Jackson is a predominantly Black city in the poorest state in the country. They have boil water advisories often due to problems with the water pressure and an aging infrastructure. From Flint to Indigenous communities across the country, we've seen this issue recur over and over again. Why do you think there's no end in sight to the water crisis? This is absolutely heartbreaking, Brittany. But we know there's no end in sight because this didn't start recently. If we focus on Jackson and the state of Mississippi, it was literally one of the last states, one of the last cities in the country to desegregate. And that happened around the 1970s. And you saw white flight, which is white people left the city of Jackson and moved more towards the suburbs and the money flowed with them. That meant that money that was now meant for the predominantly black city of Jackson was not properly spent and allocated. And we're seeing all of those recent news stories come out talking about how the money 
had been seriously misappropriated. And it goes to the fact that black and brown people are just discarded. We are not considered human. Who cares if we breathe clean air? Who cares if we have clean water? People are fine with the suffering. And now after decades, everything in Jackson has come to a head. And this isn't the first time and this won't be the last time that we're going to see this happen. And that's why I'm so glad that we're talking to Nayeli today about her work, because this is an instance where you have the wrong elected officials in place who are not caring about their communities. So people are going to have to take the issues into their own hands and make sure that they're getting those elected officials out and getting the new people in. And you know me, the new people that I want in are the people from the community who have been directly impacted by this, who understand the lived experience, and who are going to do the right thing, not only to fix it, but make it better. Because this is a situation that you cannot put a Band-Aid on. You're going to need some serious investments, so you're going to need the people who are also looking for the long-term solutions. You're 100% right. And it's just so upsetting to know so many people have to wonder each day if they have access to resources that we should all have living in this country. And those cities that you talked about with the white flight, those areas and those suburbs, they have it. They have everything. They don't have to worry about waking up and, oh, can I use the water from the sink for my coffee? Whereas other people have to say, let me go get this bottled water just so I can enjoy coffee. So I can make sure that my baby is drinking healthy water, that my kids will have the things that they need to eat throughout the day. I also think so much lately about our older people, our elderly people, those who live alone or who need assistance, how that's impacting their daily lives and creating more of a struggle. Yeah, and we have to remind everyone listening that bottled water is not free. Bottled water is not free. We know that they were running out of water and people have to buy that bottled water. People are also still making money off of this unfortunate situation. Yeah. And this is a systemic issue that is indicative of a larger problem. It's a prime example of environmental racism. One of the stories that really sticks with me from when the Flint water crisis began, and let's note it is still going on all these years later, is there was a woman who talked about how bright her son was. She was excited about his future and how he was going to go to college and lift himself out of poverty, help lift the rest of the family out of poverty, and the lead in the water impacted his brain, and now he struggles. So now there's another generation of poverty that is going to happen in that family, all because there wasn't clean water. So that environmental racism, healthcare racism, educational racism, all of it is connected. So we have to remember that we're just not talking about water here. There's going to be health impacts. Kids are going to struggle with learning. How many adults aren't going to be able to function at their jobs? 
the way that they used to. And we're going to hear from Nayeli about all of this because it connects to her story and her starting at nine years old because environmental racism was going to cause her to have serious struggles in life. And I look forward to hearing her story. Thanks for chatting, Brittany. You can hear more about the effects of climate change on communities of color and my conversation with climate activist Nayeli Kobo. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Nayeli, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm happy to be here. I am good, and I am so thrilled to have you today. You are beyond impressive. So thank you for taking time to talk to the BGG community. Of course. I'm so happy. Thank you for having me on and inviting me. I'm like giddy. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to first dive in by letting people just know about you, but I want them to know about you in your own words. So let's start with your history as an activist. And even before that, as someone who grew up in an environment that led you to do the work that you do today. So how did you first come to realize that you were living in an area that was so affected by toxic drilling and pollution, and it put you on this journey to be this amazing advocate for communities today? I grew up in South Central. I grew up in the most beautiful, vibrant community where we were all family, where if the ice cream man was walking down and we did not have cash on us, he would say, it's fine, grab what you want, pay me next time. I lived in an affordable housing building with my mom, my three siblings, my great grandparents, and my grandma. In late 2010, Elenco had a leak, a week long leak. And this oil well was just spewing this smell like rotten eggs. And it instantly made you sick to your stomach. I had headaches, stomach pains, nausea, vomiting, the list goes on. And we thought something could be wrong internally within the apartment building. So we contacted Esperanza Community Housing And they told us that it could very well just be the oil well across the street, Alenco Energy. So we started calling the South Coast Air Quality Management District as communities and started filing complaints. Oh, like my heart just breaks hearing that, what you had to go through. And we know just even right now, so many communities are facing these types of issues. If anyone is paying attention to the news, especially with water quality, now we're just seeing a city after city, first Flint, now Jackson. But we also know that oil is a big part of pollution as well with drilling. Like I know everyone just heard you talk about this, but you really, really got involved at the age of nine, and you started making speeches about this, which I want to talk about because most (laughs) nine-year-olds just even getting in front of the class at a young age and giving a book report is a lot, but you ended up leading People Not Puzzles, and you were the youngest in the group, but you became the head. So seeing this happen, being so young, What was it in you that made you say, people need to hear my voice, even though I'm not the oldest person in this movement, I may not be considered the wisest, I need for people to hear what I have to say. I was actually always a really shy girl. Like people don't really believe that, but I would not talk to my own shadow. I would not 
separate from my mom. It was always like my mom and my siblings for me and my grandma. (laughs) And when I was first asked to speak at a town hall meeting, I was 10 years old. And that was my biggest fear. Like I would always ask my teacher, can I just present to you privately during lunch and not go in front of these 20 kids? But seeing how many people were being poisoned in our own homes, we weren't allowed to open the windows in our own home. We weren't allowed to go play outside as kids because if we were outside, we were more exposed to toxic emissions. That was our reality. And my mom has always told me to be a viable community member, to stand up for what I believe in, to use my voice. And when I saw so many other community members, especially the adults after working 16 hour days that were still willing to go door to door knocking at night for two hours, that were still willing to show up to that community meeting and learn how to practice their stories. That's what drove me. It was if I have the language, if I'm able-bodied and I can go door-to-door knocking after school, why will I stay silent? Like, yeah, I don't know the legal terms. I don't know the science. Like, benzene is, I still don't even know what that is, you know? Like, it's all these crazy things that we have to become the experts in. But one thing we don't have to be the experts in is in our story, because there's no way we can get that wrong. And when I realized the power that our stories have, the power of storytelling and how it is a form of activism that just goes unnoticed, I remember walking up to the podium and it being so silent, you could hear a pin drop. And in that moment, all of my fears went away. My legs stopped trembling. My breath came back into my chest and I was no longer afraid because I knew the power that I had to represent my community in those two minutes at that podium would be so much bigger than my fear of public speaking. It was bigger than me wanting to be at home practicing the Disney Channel wave wand, you know? But it's always been that quote with my mom saying, be an important, viable community member for your community. You have to not be afraid to stand up and speak out. That's what drives me. And as a fellow shy girl, I completely relate to everything that you said, that there's just that moment where we realize we have to use our voice. And when we're able to have the platform to encourage other people and tell our story, that's what the BGG is, to tell stories like yours. So you got up there, you spoke for those two minutes, and it really grew even beyond your own neighborhood, this fight. So tell us, what did it take to put an end to the toxic drilling that was happening in your area? It took a lot. After four years, the LA Times wrote a story about my community and how close urban oil drilling was happening in Los Angeles. Again, I grew up 30 feet across the street from a well. Allen Go, the well, operates on land that's leased to them by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And it's unfortunately another way that the church is abusing children. As someone that has gone to Catholic school for 12 years of her life because of what they have instilled in me, because of the morals and the beliefs, I feel like it is my duty to call them out on being hypocrites. Because, I mean, every day we rest, what would Jesus do? Stand up for your neighbors, the golden rule, protect God's creation. But then the church is choosing profit over people's health. You really just put your faith into action. I love everything that you just said. And if we can stick with that for a moment, because a lot of people don't think that you can focus on progressive types of issues like caring about the environment and 
be Catholic, be religious, but the way that you just really tied it together is these are your values that you are being taught to fight for. And I love it. It's how I feel. I say I am a Democrat because of my values and what I believe in. And with like the other kids in your school, did they get involved? Did they feel that same type of fire that you had that it's not just your mom saying be a viable member of the community, but part of my faith instills in me that I have to take on this fight to protect my community? The emissions would waft over because I went to school two blocks from the well. So we were constantly being exposed. The emissions can travel for miles on end. And something that Alan Go would do when drilling for oil, there's already so many toxic chemicals that are exposed and it smells like rotten eggs. But what Alan Go would do is add more chemicals to mask the smell. So then it would smell like guava or cherries. Chocolate was their favorite. And when we were playing kickball, I would always be the girl that's like, <clears throat> we are two blocks from an active oil well that produces 60 to 80 barrels of crude oil on the day. They do X, Y, and Z, and it was this whole thing. I actually did that so much that the school asked me to stop speaking against the archdiocese on archdiocese ground because they were the owners or they were like essentially the school's boss. So at school, I was not allowed to vocalize my activism, but I still did. Your activism was just the truth, but they tried to stop you. They didn't. And when I skip to like 2015, you and the South Central Youth Leadership Coalition, along with other organizations, successfully sued the city of Los Angeles for violating the California Environmental Quality Act. And around this lawsuit, you also spoke about environmental racism. Let's get into that because we know it is real. A lot of folks like to deny it. So tell us a little bit about the lawsuit and how you framed talking about this topic that so many people really wish to go away, but it's not going to go away. I'm a proud co-founder of Silk, the South Central Youth Leadership Coalition, and it was just a bunch of high schoolers that sued. I think the oldest was 17. So we weren't even 18 yet. I remember in our group chat the day of the suit, I think it was a Tuesday, we were texting each other. I'm getting out of fourth period early to be there on time. Yeah, I'm going to skip six and skip this. And it was like the discussion pre-suing the city of Los Angeles was just hilarious. But we sued them for a violation of the California Environmental Quality Act. So essentially rubber stamping. So what rubber stamping is, is if I were trying to open a new drilling in the city of Wilmington, I would just get green. Go, 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 do whatever you want, doesn't matter. But if then I presented the city with a drilling application for a more affluent community, such as Beverly Hills, Culver City, I would be presented with barriers. So I could only operate from nine to five business hours when people typically aren't home. I would have to use silent drills. I had to limit the amount of wells operating. They had to have special filters. They had to have X, Y, and Z. That's environmental racism. How can someone look at me or my community or someone else and say, you don't deserve to breathe clean air, but so-and-so in this zip code does? How can someone deny us of a basic fundamental human right of breathing clean air? So that's why we sued. And it was 
extra monumental because we were just youth. It was us future generations. It was us future lawyers, future doctors, future presidents. I run for president 2036. Vote for me. I will. <laughs> I run a women's organization that trains women to run for office. So this excites me very, very much. <laughs> it was us demanding that we have a city to inherit. It was us demanding that the city listen to us, even with our lack of a high school diploma, because our voices and our stories matter. I was going to say, like, I love how you're saying that you're just youth, but I don't love it at the same time, because even though you all are young, just so powerful. And as someone who started their activism also when she was young, it just makes me so happy just to see the energy, the activism, the organizing around something, especially when you have school leaders saying, no, stop, don't do that. I love the defiance. I love the absolute defiance. So I want to keep on going. And you have done this incredible work. You started when you were young. Your friends started when you were young. And a lot of people still want to get involved. And they don't know how to do it, where to go. You began very much on the local level, on the community level. So what advice would you give to especially the young people who are listening, who care about the environment, who are looking for their place to go to really get involved and make the type of change that you've been able to make. I think the first thing is to know that your voice matters, you know, and you're doing something because you truly believe in it. And that keeps me driven, you know, because I fight so no child has my childhood. I fight so urban oil drilling is read about in history books. All of these little things are what keep pushing me to fight, even though there are so many barriers, you know, but first thing is to know that your, your voice matters and to find something that really does ignite that fire in your belly. And that is your passion and your movement and your voice. The second is to educate yourself on the issue that you want to focus on, because we can't create change if we're not educated. We don't know what's wrong. Then we can't figure out a solution. But then third and most importantly for me is to listen to frontline community members. Oftentimes people come into our communities and think we need saving. Like, I know how to do this. I know how to get this well out. We need to do X, Y, and Z without ever having set foot in our community beforehand. And that's the last thing we need is saving because we know what's wrong. We know the solutions. We just need to be uplifted. We need the support to get to place B. If you find, for example, you're into environmental racism, if you Google environmental racism in LA, for example, there could possibly be groups that pop up that are fighting to end that and starting to volunteer or joining the first meeting that they have in person again. That could be a great way to really step in. And if there's not a group, I mean, start one. It's not the end of the world. Is it scary and intimidating? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. But by you starting that group, you're allowing another activist to Google environmental racism in LA and see your group pop up. And then they now have a way. And by you starting something, you're opening the door for many other activists to follow. And you have done that. You've done this incredible work. You're 21. You're about to return to school. So just tell everyone, like, what's next for you? What do you want people to know about what you're going to be doing? And of course, tell them how they can support your work and follow along. Right now for me, I am back in school. I am starting my second year of college. 
I'm actually supposed to be graduating this year and all of my friends are like applying for graduation. Something that I have to remind myself of is that everyone does have their own trajectory, you know, and I'm on my own path. And the reason I stopped going to school was for my life. You know, I didn't stop to just party or do something crazy. It was because I needed to focus on myself. Another thing for me is I would love to have a meeting with the Pope. If anyone listening can help me set that up, I would greatly appreciate it. I sent a video to the Pope when I was around 11 years old. I sent another video to the Pope as a community once he delivered the encyclopedia. I also wrote him a handwritten letter that was delivered to him in his hands, but I have yet to receive a response. And unfortunately, Alenco is not the only well that the Archdiocese leases land to. So I would like to talk about that with him. A meeting with President Biden would also be great to talk about the millions of Americans living within an oil and gas site or a refinery. If I'm remembering correctly, I believe there's over 17 million Americans living within a quarter of a mile or less to an active oil and gas well, and that's, that's inhumane. Los Angeles right now is the largest urban oil field in the nation. We aren't talking about that because we're too busy keeping up with the Kardashians. You know, we need to talk about the people that are living on a bomb because these wells operate under such immense pressure that every 10 to 15 minutes they have to open valves to prevent an explosion. And a lot of the wells are connected underground. It's this insane domino effect. So yeah, fighting to end urban oil extraction and protect the health and safety of millions of Americans, um, a goal of mine. Right now, Los Angeles is going to start phasing out oil and gas wells in the city and the county. California state legislators approved a 3,200-foot health and safety buffer zone in the state of California between oil extraction and sensitive land, and that's the start. But then we need to work on this nationally, and then we cannot forget about our brothers and sisters internationally that are suffering this. The way I think about it is like, yeah, I tend to be the face and... I talk a lot about this, but when you look closely into my face, you'll see right here, it's my mom, or right here, you have Ben from Louisiana. And then these are all the people that are fighting day to day for their right to breathe clean air. And their fight is my fight, and we will not stay silent. We will not go unnoticed. And as a woman of faith, I think of this fight as a David and Goliath, and I'm very happy to be David in this fight. <laughs> you are definitely David. Nayeli, thank you so much for joining us. I learned a lot. It's great to see you healthy and doing well. And you're just truly an inspiration. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. This season, we at the BGG are zooming in on the individual and going on the scene. Today, we are going on the scene for climate change with Ariel King. She tells us about her work finding hope in the climate crisis and ways we can get involved in combating climate change in our communities. My name is Ariel King. I use she, her pronouns. I'm an environmental justice advocate and educator, passionate about making environmental education more accessible. I grew up in upstate New York, specifically in Albany, New York, in what some would consider an environmental justice community or a frontline community. My neighborhood is a food desert. It had multiple different sources of pollution that were contributing to environmental harm for a lot of my neighbors. I think as you grow older, you develop 
language to explain a lot of these disparities, but you still recognize that they exist even at a young age. And Dr. Robert Bullard, who is considered the father of environmental justice, once said that your zip code is still the most potent predictor of an individual's health and well-being. So I have a podcast called The Joy Report. It's really about creating opportunities for people to learn about positive climate solutions through the lens of environmental justice and intersectionality. Our goal is to try to inundate people with as much positive climate news and good things that people and organizations are doing all over the world to combat the doom and gloom that we receive whenever we're reading or hearing things about the climate crisis. You know, there was a recent study that came out that talked about the fact that there is a very, very small percentage of climate change related news that's being broadcast on a national level. And even less of that is positive. Almost all of it is negative. It's talking about all of the devastation. It's talking about the wildfires and the floods. We foresee and we hope that the Joy Report is an opportunity for people to at least shift their mindsets and be open to new ideas and get involved in solutions. And so we direct people to other resources where they can learn more. We encourage people to donate their time and their energy and their money to certain causes. And we really just want all of it to be accessible, recognizing that people have different levels of what they can give and what they can contribute, but everyone does have a role to play in contributing to positive change and positive solutions. I think something that I always encourage people to do is find their why, especially young people who are wanting to get more involved in the environmental movement and the climate movement or just in social justice movements in general. Obviously, getting involved is the right thing to do, but if you don't have a particular individualized reason for wanting to get involved, sometimes it's hard to sustain that momentum and that desire. And so for me, I do environmental justice work because I don't want people to experience unequal levels of environmental harm. Communities who look like me are the ones who are going to be first and most severely impacted if there is no action, if there is no change. Grassroots supporters across the country are making their voices heard this election season because their voices have an impact. AgLoo's secure online fundraising platform is trusted by millions of small dollar donors who are driving the change they want to see. At actblue.com slash directory, you can find and contribute directly to the groups and causes that matter most to you. So head to actblue.com slash directory to take action today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps us out. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at www.thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. Check out our next episode where we will talk with Hope Wallensack, Executive Director of the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund. Until next time, Brown Girls. <laughs>